everyone, and welcome to this episode of Coffee Break and Parenting Talk. I'm really excited today to talk about play with Jesse Ilhart. Let me introduce Jesse to you. Jesse Ilhart co-founded a nonprofit organization called Vosel in 2013 and was named the executive director in 2021. Prior to co-founding Vosel, she worked for six years as a pre-kindergarten teacher and teacher coach at Teach for America. Across these roles, she has combined strategic thinking, creativity, and empathic leadership to develop innovative early education programs, lead high-impact teams, and cultivate champions. She's a member of the National Association for the Education of Young Children and has presented at Harvard University Center on the Developing Child, the Illinois Association for Infant Mental Health, the Alliance for Early Childhood, and many community-based early childhood conferences. In 2022, her TEDx talk on how play helps grow a kid's brain was featured on TED.com, reaching 500,000 viewers around the globe. Welcome, Jesse. I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and it is that TED talk, actually, that um, introduced me to what you do. I saw that a couple of my friends uh, shared that talk on Facebook and Instagram. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's just the perfect time because I was just doing workshops for parents about the importance of play in the early years. So um, this is this is how we got connected. Absolutely. It's, it's been amazing to see how the TED Talk has really connected with people, like you said, around the globe. Um, and and I think shined a light on this fact that the experience of raising young children, parenting, educating is so universal. And we all seems like struggle with some of the same things. Um, so I'm excited to to talk with you and the families that you work with. Thank you. Yeah. I would love to start by asking you, like, how did you come into this work? What what motivated you to start um, you know, thinking about play? You know, as I read in your bio, you've worked as a kindergarten teacher, you help parents, you coach teachers, but how did you come into realizing, wow, play is actually an important thing to focus on and talk about in the early childhood? Yes. So it, it really evolved throughout my career. Um, I didn't come into my teaching profession year one, uh, really understanding play-based learning or the benefits of it. It was something I learned along the way. Um, a lot of it was in my coursework, getting my master's in child development, um, reading reading these articles, having these discussions with professors, um, and having the opportunity to go see some of the most exemplary um, preschools, kindergartens, elementary schools in the United States, but realizing that some of those programs were, were more of the anomaly or the exception and not really the standard across early childhood education. Um, so that, that, really, that really was frustrating to me. The idea that we had this knowledge, right? These um, university centers that were doing this research, putting out these great publications, uh, but it wasn't really reaching the hands of the parents, the caregivers, the educators who were doing this work. Um, and I saw that disconnect. Uh, first, I saw it in an education environment. And then when my organization started working more with parents, we saw that that same disconnect existed there. Uh, and I felt it when I became a parent myself. Um, so I'm really inspired by this idea that we can take 
um, research on brain development, um, kind of the science of early learning and make it conversational, like talk with families about how to, children can learn best. Mm, that's really exciting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how uh, that evolved in your career. So um, let me ask you, so talking about play, why, so from your experience and from, from your studies, why is play so important for developing children's brain? What does it do? Yes, so play, we can really think of play as the work of children. Um, I love that idea because when we think about for adults, right, going to work, we're using all these different thought processes, right? We're, we're putting together social skills, cognitive skills. We're drawing on our knowledge of math, and literacy, and all these things. For, for children, play does just that. Um, and play, I think, is, is special because it allows children to learn and practice many skills at the same time. Um, so if you think about a child sitting down and doing a worksheet, they are really honed in and focused on one concrete skill, um, right? It might be um, recognizing the letters of the alphabet or connecting matching colors or things like that. Um, one discrete skill that they're working on. Whereas in a play situation, children can be practicing that color recognition or color matching, but also socializing and having conflicts with other children, having to resolve those problems. Or they can also be doing goal setting and thinking about how are we going to create this together? Um, so they're able to call on so many things. I think that what that means is that play is a more efficient tool for learning, right? If we're going to spend time as a parent or an educator, um, we know time is always, it's precious, it's limited. Um, if we're going to spend it on one thing, we'd rather do something that's developing our children um, in a really holistic way, as opposed to focusing on just one concrete skill. Um, so that's one piece, one reason that I think play is the best way for children to learn. And then the second thing I would say uh, is that play, uh, Dr. Stuart Brown, who's one of the leading kind of researchers on play, he defines play as all-consuming. Um, so this idea that um, when children or adults play, they're all in on it. They're not worried about other things that are going mm -hmm. on, right? Um, and as parents and teachers, oftentimes we struggle to get children to pay attention, right? We, I know for me, my son is in kindergarten. If he brings home a worksheet that he has to do for homework, feels like there might be 10 times that I say like, pay attention while we're trying to complete one <laughs> worksheet. Uh, and with play, we never have to tell children to pay attention. Um, it's all consuming for them. So uh, we want learning to be fun and engaging for children so that they love school and they love learning. Um, and play is really a great way to do that. Right. Wow. Yeah. So, so two things. One is that it's more efficient, really more holistic to learning than just focusing on learning academic uh, subject. And then it's really engages the child, really focuses their attention. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really great, and that's what really helps their brain to to grow and get connected in many ways. So you talk about how play is important. So let's talk in the very early years. So when do you start focusing on academic? Like, what is what is academic learning? What is play based learning? What are the differences? 
Yes. So I was just talking with a group of parents about this last night. Um, and we, we looked at this, um, this great kind of visual a graphic um, that talked about the umbrella of play-based learning or playful learning. Um, and that there's a continuum that um, when we think about learning, it could go all the way from complete free play open-ended play where um, the child is deciding what materials to use, the child is deciding how to do what they're going to do, um, to more guided play where adults are involved and they're prompting the child, maybe thinking of a child who's pretending to have a restaurant and the parent saying, why don't you get a notepad and take my order, um, right? So the, the parent is sort of um, prompting some of that learning. And then we can go further down that continuum to more structured play, like a board game um, or an outdoor um, game that has rules and, and boundaries. And then the farthest end of the spectrum that's outside that umbrella of playful learning, but is another type of learning, is direct instruction. And that's what direct instruction is what oftentimes we see the most in schools. Um, or the example, like I was sharing before, of a worksheet is very direct instruction. The child doesn't have agency to decide how they're going to complete it. It's very obvious, right? Um, and so that type of direct instruction is very good for some of those academic skills. Um, if a child is learning how to, what sounds a particular letter makes in the alphabet, or how to blend sounds together when they are reading, that's a really hard thing to teach through play. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be practiced through play, but actually teaching it for the first few times happens better in direct instruction. And so I think that's a really important point that is sometimes a misconception um, is that it has to be all play or no play. Um, and it really is a balance that's, that's important, um, an intentional balance, understanding when to use direct instruction and when to use play. That type of academic learning with direct instruction typically is best around ages of four, five, six years old. Um, younger than that, kind of two, three years old, children should really be focused on play. Um, even reading, right? We hear a lot of parents say, oh, I want my child to read when they're young. Um, but the research around the science of reading tells us that if when they're in those younger years, we focus on how the child is hearing sounds, like singing songs together, reading nursery rhymes, um, uh, playing like talking back and forth games mm -hmm. with them, that's actually going to prepare their brain for that direct instruction when they get to those ages of five, six, seven years old. Um, so I think it's it's okay for parents not to feel the pressure to have a child do that direct instruction too young. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is what, when we talk about how the brain is built, it goes from the bottom up and that play really helps integrate those first layers, you know, first parts of the brain before we start teaching them. The, but I, I love that because yes, I think a lot of parents do feel that pressure, like, oh, my kid, like my, my neighbor's kid or my friend's kids are reading when they're three or whatever. And then you feel that pressure is like, I need to get them to read. Yes. So it's important to remember that play, focusing on play is actually laying the foundation for learning. It really is. And I, I think that um, children certainly can develop skills younger. Um, right? And we see that some children do. There are individual differences. Some children just naturally will pick up certain skills younger. Um, that doesn't mean that all children need to. And it doesn't mean that they'll be behind 
those other children come five, six, seven years old. Um, typically, we find that if a child isn't really ready to learn something when they're, let's say, two, three, four years old, um, they'll tell us that. They'll signal it by their disinterest, right? Um, and if we push them as parents or educators to do it, um, typically we see it result in things like the child is less interested in school or they really become stubborn and say, I'm not doing it. It becomes power struggles. Um, and then, right, it's, it's harming the relationship and it's still not teaching the child to read. Um, so it's not effective um, until they're really, their brain is ready for it. And then when it is that right time, typically children learn things much quicker. Um, and so it does, again, it goes back to that efficiency piece. Like where do we wanna be spending our time? Um, and then the other thing you said about the brain developing from the bottom up, I think is really important too, because some of those social skills, kind of emotional regulation skills that are come more from those base parts of the brain, um, those take longer to develop. And so it is strategic on the part of parents and caregivers to start working on those earlier. The academic skills, like I said, those, those can be developed quickly, but these other ones take a longer time. So we really do need to focus on those early so that children have a strong foundation when they're going to school. Mm, okay. That yeah, that is really important to to the you know what you mentioned. I just had a class last week about emotion, you know, and <laughs> raising emotionally healthy children and how you do this in the early years. So can you tell me a little bit about like what kind of play would you focus on in those early years to nurture that? And is all play equal? Like is you know, there might be competitive play or free play or you know, like many different kinds of play. So what do you, what, what would you focus on in those early years? What kind of play and what are the different kinds if there are, if there are yes, differences? Yes, there definitely are. And I would say that it, not all play is created equal. There are definitely, um, uh, right, when we think about uh, evaluating the, um, the kind of effectiveness of play. Um, we can think back to that that continuum that I was describing before of like free play, guided play, games. Right. Um, they all can have a role, but typically the play situations where the children have the most agency, the most freedom, uh, are, are the best for their brain development. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, the fewer restrictions on their play, um, the better. As long as then there are there are some play scenarios that are sprinkled in that do have restrictions because it's important for children to learn and be flexible, right? Um, to be able to recognize that there are boundaries that maybe in a play situation with a few other kids, one child wants to do something and the others don't. How are they going to navigate that conflict, that problem? Um, that's one of the beauties of play is that it'll actually presents conflicts. Like if children are in a school environment where there is not a lot of play, those conflicts don't come up in school. They don't learn how to resolve them. And then they get out into the real world and there are a lot of conflicts, right? They haven't built that muscle. So that's a really important piece. Um, but in terms of also play when children are young, just part of your question, right? We, um, they're, there's a framework of the six stages of play, and it goes from a child at birth to all the way up to five, six years old. 
Um, and typically most children go through these stages in order and based on their age. And so for the first two years of life, children are in a solitary play or they call it spectator, spectator play, where they are playing independently. Um, even if there's a parent involved, the child's still doing their own play. Um, they're not yet at the point where they can play back and forth. Their brain just hasn't really developed that. Maybe a little bit with like rolling a ball back and forth, but that's about the extent of it. They can't collaborate in a play situation yet. Um, and in spectator play, they're starting to watch other people playing, right? We see this with toddlers um, as they're watching what we do as adults and learning from that. And then as they get to two to three years old, they start to do something called parallel play, where they might be playing at a table, um, at a play date with a friend at a friend's home or a cousin's home or something, where they're playing in the same room. They might be using the same materials, but they're doing their own thing. They are not, you know, they have not decided together on a goal for their play. And then when we get to really four or five years old, we start to see collaborative play. And mm. that's when you brought up competitive. That's when the competitive play can really come in is more those five, six years old. Um, the younger children just, just don't have the capacity for thinking of play in that way. Right. They're more doing it in an exploratory manner. And, and so that's okay. And I think that's really important for parents to know so that we have reasonable expectations for the kids and for ourselves. Right, right. Oh, I love that you broke that down into like those six stages that I think helps parents understand, which is why we don't really have to push them into cooperative play when they're not developmentally ready for it. Absolutely, absolutely. And children will, it's, I mean, it, I'm always amazed at the capacity of children to guide us in terms of what they need. And so if we have children who are, let's say, at a play date, there's, you know, three or four children. Um, they'll tell us what they need. If we set up some materials for them to play with, um, they might engage in some independent play. They might start to comment on each other's, you know, work or play, um, arrange themselves and say, let's do this. You know, one child might emerge as sort of a little bit of a leader and say, we should try this with our toys. And another child might say, I want to do something different. And they align together. And so we don't, as adults, typically have to create that cooperation, um, we can really follow the children's lead. That's perfect. Yeah, that's great. Um, I remember in your TED talk, you talked about some of the things that kind of get in the way of us, you know, parents or teacher nurturing that play. So I was wondering if you could talk a little about this, because I think this is just so true. Maybe that's why we have some resistance. Yes. Yes, I love that you asked this because it really is something that um, when we think about it from a, a theoretical standpoint, we often understand that children learn through play, yeah. but then it's still hard to put it like into why, why isn't it happening? Why, why aren't schools using that more? Why isn't play more encouraged? And why are parents not spending so much time nurturing that? Um, yes, yes. So... I think there's a few things that are getting in the way. Um, first, I would say that there is still a sort of deep-seated, um, I think somewhat societal uh, belief that play is frivolous. Like play is trivial, play is fun and joyful, and it is not hard work. Um, and it's interesting because 
in many cultures, we value hard work. Um, but hard work is, is if we look at the definition of hard work, it's something that requires a great deal of effort. And so hard work does not have to be absent of joy, right? Something could require a great deal of effort and still look very joyful. And I think that's the case with play. Um, we know that play does require a lot of effort from the child's brain. They have to bring together all of these different processes, connect different parts of the brain or different parts of the brain are firing the neurons, right? While they're playing. And so it does require a great deal of effort. Children have to navigate those social conflicts that they wouldn't have to do at all during direct instruction. So it does require a great deal of effort um, and it is really serious but it also is joyful. And so I think one piece is that we have to be comfortable with that, um, that concept right. that something can be hard work, but look fun and playful. Um, I think that's one thing that gets in the way. I also think from a school perspective, um, this probably plays out more, but also I think this relates to parents that it can be harder to see the measurable outcomes of play in a child's learning than it is with asking them to do a worksheet or to do this set activity that the teacher asked them, their, you know, flashcards, for, for example, yeah. flashcards with letters or numbers. It's very easy to see, like, did my child get it or not? Um, whereas with play, it, it takes a little longer sometimes to see the results of it. And we have to trust the process a little more. And that that can be hard and scary, especially when we live in cultures where we're very concerned about our children measuring up um, to other children, or like you were saying before, being behind their neighbor yeah. or their friend. Um, so then it's scary to say, I'm going to trust that this is going to work, um, even if I can't see it right away. Um, yeah. So that's a second thing that gets in the way. And then the, the last two, I would say, really have to do with the adults. Um, for many of us as parents, caregivers, we're busy, we're like feel maybe by the end of the day, we're tired. We don't have a lot of energy and playing with our children doesn't always seem like the most fun thing for us to do. Um, and I think that might be because we are putting all the emphasis on exactly what our child wants to do for play. Um, and so something I talk with parents about often is giving ourselves permission to think about how we want to play. And if our child has let's say toy cars, building blocks, and a pretend kitchen, um, we might naturally gravitate towards one of those things. I know for me, I really love building with my son's um, blocks or magnetic tiles. I enjoy that. I will do that with them. But playing pretend in the kitchen with putting the plates on the table and you know, asking, would you like some more water, some more tea? That is not really something I enjoy. And so I tell my son if he, you know, he's five and a half, if he wants to play and he asks me, will you play with me? I might say to him right now, I really want to play with blocks. When you're ready to play with blocks, let me know and I'll join you. But if you're not ready to play with blocks, you can play independently um, in the kitchen. And and that um, sometimes for parents, if they're not used to that, that can feel a little bit hard to set those boundaries. But it's really important for children to hear that we as adults have preferences because it tells them 
that they can also have preferences, right? They, mm-hmm. if a friend tells them they want to play this, they can say, no, I'm not ready right now. Um, and so it's important for us to model that. Um, and so I think really for parents, it's like the energy and then also not feeling bad about if play is a little bit uncomfortable. A lot of us as adults have kind of grown out of play. Um, And so I hear from parents sometimes, I don't feel good at playing. Um, I don't know that I have the skills to play. Um, But really, like, it becomes a cyclical process when we start to do it, right? Um, Especially if we think first from the place of what type of play do I enjoy? Um, Do that. And then we, we get back in the in the swing of it kind of. Um, so I think we just have to not be so hard on ourselves as parents, um, give ourselves permission and then and just start trying it. And typically it, it comes along pretty quickly. Yeah, no, those are really good points. Um, first of all, I think the first one you said, yeah, that is just because something is joyful or happy doesn't mean like it's a waste of time that they're actually, it's a, it is a lot of work. It is serious. And um yeah, that is not measurable, but it's hard to see um, what's happening in the brain when they're playing as opposed to like, oh, they learned the alphabet. Look, they can make these sounds. That's measurable. You can see it. So you think quick results versus it's almost like gardening. You're, it, the process takes time. You don't know how long it's going to take for that seed to grow. And then I love what you said, giving parents permission to think of uh, how do I want to play, which I don't, yeah, I have not heard that before, you know, just thinking like, oh, I do have preferences as adults. I might want to play this and not that. And it's okay to tell the child I'm not ready to play with this. And then, so you, you talked about that play can be uncomfortable. And I think this is so true. Would you say like, I think this is probably one of the reasons why a lot of parents do avoid play or maybe not engage in it as much. We do have, I know for me, when I was, when I became a parent, play was definitely the hardest thing. I saw other parents play with their kids on the playground and it was like, oh, I don't think it can be that silly. I can't just run around. It took me time, but um, eventually I found my way through play. Yes. So. Yeah. So you would suggest just start doing it, start with little things and hopefully. Yes. Those baby steps. I think like small, um, because it's not, it it has been for most of us a while since we were young children and kind of having this like unbridled sense of Mm. I can play and be silly and I'm not worried about what people think of me. Um, As adults, we develop more of that self-consciousness. And so it's, it's hard to kind of break that mold. Um, I think that taking little steps, right? Maybe first it's doing some play situations at home where we don't have the pressure of those outside eyes, like at a public park, (laughs) right? Um, so starting taking little steps and again, starting with something that is more natural for us. Um, maybe we are someone who who really loves gardening or cooking, realizing that those experiences are also a form of play and we can bring children into those experiences first. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just t- taking it little by little. But the other thing I would say is that um, there's sometimes a misconception that play always needs to involve adults, um, that for children to be learning through play, um, that the adult has to be involved. And I talk in the, in the TED talk about, um, 
the value that parents or adults do bring to play because they go back and forth in conversations, serve and return, and uh, that helps develop the child's brain. But also, there is really great learning that children do when they are exploring something independently and they don't have parents kind of um, getting in the way. Sometimes we get in the way. A child might really, because we can't always tell, like you were saying before, we can't always tell what's happening in a child's brain when they're trying to stack blocks and get it to stand. And so if we interject and say, oh, it looks like you're doing this, Sometimes it almost distracts the child. Um, And so it's really important sometimes also to let our children play independently. And that's good for us. We can take a break. We can be reading a book while they're playing. Um, And that's not us being lazy or us wanting to, you know, just not do the work. It's it's really intentional for children's development. Yeah, I yeah, that's so true. That's really that's a good point. So you just mentioned that serve and return and that interaction between a parent and child. For someone who doesn't know what that means, can you yes. just explain a little bit what do you mean by serve and return? Yes, serve and return is a concept that uh, Harvard University's Center on the Developing Child uses quite a bit. Um, And I I love the concept of it. When I first learned about it, someone described it to me um, like a tennis match. So thinking about someone serving a tennis ball to the other person and then the other person swatting it back. Um, But thinking about that between a child and an adult. Um, So it could start either way. Maybe the adult asks a question to the child, like, what did you do at school today? And the child responds, and then the parent responds, and the child responds back. Um, It doesn't always have to be like an interview style, though, where it's questions. Um, It could also be a parent's, um, you know, if a child asks a question, um, and the parent just makes a comment like, hmm, that's interesting, that could be a return, because all it does is it prompts another it prompts the conversation to continue. And that's really what it, when we think about that brain development and especially language communication development, it's about um, continuing the conversation and having these exchanges back and forth. And what I also love about serve and return is that it can happen even younger before the child is verbal. Um, It can happen with glances, right? Where a child, a baby looks at, you know, a a car drives by or, or maybe a fire engine, right? With a siren drives by and the child looks out and that could be the child serve. And then the parent or the caregiver can return that with, oh, you heard a siren. And like, maybe they're going to mimic the sounds and then the child mimics it, right? Um, And so it's really about this back and forth. Um, It tells the child that what they are seeing or what they are talking about is important, important Mm. enough to the parent that they're willing to go there with the child. Um, And so I I really love the concept of it. It's helped me a lot in my parenting as well. Mm, Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. You know, when you think of it that way, it just makes all these interaction make sense. I love that. So you mentioned like that helped you in your parenting. Do you feel like, you know, after teaching, being a parent, has your perspective changed on play or how did that evolve for you? I'm curious. Yes, absolutely. I would say before I became a parent myself, I was fascinated by the research around child development um, and and also had, I think, much um, like more rigid ideas about what worked for young children's Mm -hmm. development, because I wasn't seeing it 
in my own children yet. So, and I wasn't seeing it through the perspective of a busy parent. Um, and so I was reading about, you know, even something like the example of screen time and seeing, I was reading the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation on, on screen time and saying, well, for children to develop optimally, there should be no screen time before a certain age, right? And I felt that strongly because that was all I knew. And then having a having children myself and realizing just the real life, um, the, the realities, right? Like yeah. the context of it um, is so important. Um, and I think that, yeah. especially with having my second, I would say I became like a more relaxed parent, um, understanding that, yes, there are these recommendations out there, but I need to think about what works for my family, what works right. for myself. Um, and I, I think that that helped me have a more balanced perspective on everything. And even with yeah. play, right? Um, that there, there are certainly theories around play and this research out there. It's important that we get it into the hands of parents, but that we also discuss the, the kind of nuances so that parents don't feel this pressure to right. uphold this one gold standard. Yeah. And if like, if I don't do this, I'm failing. And yes, <laughs> yes, as parents, we already think we're failing most of the time, you know, <laughs> like eh, that's pretty common that parents think I'm not yeah. doing well enough or, um, you there's know, every- so much. Yeah. I mean, that's what I get from parents. They're like, oh my gosh, there is so much. We have to do so much, you know, when you're thinking of emotional health and, and now play and nurturing their curiosity and, you know, all of these things. So yeah, yes. it's hard. I wanted yeah. to ask you because you talk about smart toys versus like simple toys. And I think like for where I am, because I'm an expat, a lot of time the parents feel like they have to buy for their kids the latest toys or the smart toys or, you know, the gadgets and everything. But you say like, it's, we don't have to, you know, what is the difference between smart toys and then simple toys? Um, Absolutely. If- so I, and I see across socioeconomic groups, I see this feeling of pressure that we need to have the smart toy. That's because that's what the message is that we're consuming and hearing, right? I mean, marketers are, are very savvy and know how to send us the messages or even send our children the messages, right? Through commercials or ads that they might see on YouTube or whatever it is about the new fancy toy and it's bright colors and it flashes, right? Typically, the smart toys have some type of like a digital component to them, which we know is also really um, kind of addicting, right? So um, if it's, you know, something that has a screen um, and and children are using it, um, they are going to be more apt to want to do that thing. Um, But what I, what I like to think about with evaluating the toys and the uh, kind of how the toy supports brain development is thinking about, whether the child is deciding what to do with this toy Mm -hmm. or whether the manufacturer decided how the child will interact with the toy. Um, Typically with um, a lot of like video games for young children or some of those smart toys, even for infants, right? The ones where you like, you press different buttons and they make sounds. Um, I'm not saying that they are bad or harmful, but um, it's very, it's very like um, one, one way to use it. Um, if you press this button here, it makes this sound. The manufacturer decided that the child could do it and it's fairly repetitive. Um, as opposed to something like a ball, right? Or um, blocks, wooden blocks, right. um, where they're so multi-use. Um, and sometimes that makes it actually harder for us as adults 
than it does for the children because we're, again, we were talking about this, like we're out of practice. So sometimes Mm -hmm. it's hard for us to think creatively about what are the other ways a child might use a ball besides just kicking it or throwing it. But there are so many ways, right? If you think about putting it with wooden blocks and the child creating a little thing for the ball to sit inside or for the child to balance some blocks and roll the ball down it. There's so many things. And it's really about the child's, um, it's, it's prompting the child to do that like heavy lifting, that thinking in the brain to figure out how they're going to use the toy. Um, and that's part of the learning and problem solving. Like it's really like pre-engineering, right? And, and so simple toys allow for much more of that. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a very good message. It's, I know there are some schooling systems that focus on simple toys like the Montessori and the Waldorf. Uh, but that's I think it's important for parents to remember that you don't have to buy every new toy, every flashing toys that is not necessarily, it's not going to do anything extra for helping their brains. Yes. And for the youngest ones, uh, you know, before they're really able to play like a video game or watch a TV show. Um, For the real little ones, those smart toys that are the flashing, that are the buttons, um, often keep a a baby or toddler's attention for only a little bit of time. Um, Whereas those simple toys can keep their attention a lot longer. So I also think that's part of like us making it easier on ourselves as parents, thinking about what's going to keep our child's attention. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I, I love this, uh, you know, perspective. It really makes you think about just the importance of engaging and playing the early years and not worrying so much about academic. And I love your work and what you're doing. Can you like um, tell people, parents, teachers who are listening to this, what are you, what are you doing with your work right now? How are you helping parents and teachers through your yes. organization? Um, your yes. So our organization, as you mentioned before, is called VOCEL. It stands for Viewing Our Children as Emerging Leaders. And VOCEL started as a preschool for children. Um, We we were running um, a program from early in the morning through the evening. So it was a child care center and preschool um, program here in, in Chicago, where I'm located. And Uh, It was a wonderful program, but we started to have families coming to us and asking for support. They said, I love what my child is doing in the classroom. I want to be able to support them better at home. What questions should I be asking? Like Mm. you were saying before, what toys should I be playing with or what activities? Mm. Um, and, And we also, so we saw that families were really hungry for more resources around child development. And then the second thing that we saw is that families, parents who were dropping their children off wanted to talk to each other. Um, They were lingering in the hallway, talking with each other, um, just kind of talking about, oh, is is your child climbing on the countertop? So is mine. Or well, your child doesn't want to brush their teeth, neither does mine. Um, And so we saw that they really were craving also connection. Uh, And so we shifted. um, We no longer run a preschool. Now we think uh, really about our work as supporting training, coaching the adults who have great impact on children's brain development. Mm. So we support 
teachers, um, uh, teachers and school principals, but also parents um, to make sure they all have the information they need. And we do all of that in group sessions here in Chicago. So we, we don't do one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, we always work with these groups of parents or groups of teachers together. Um, we discuss the information around child development together, but then the social connections um, really help to add that extra layer of support. Um, so yeah, that's what we're doing, um, all located here in Chicago. That sounds wonderful. And do you see, like, is there an impact? Are teachers um, benefiting? Are they, are their perspective changing? Are you trying to implement things in the classrooms? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So with, with teachers and school principals, especially a lot of the the school principals or administrators um, who are leading schools here in Chicago um, taught themselves when they were teachers, they taught the upper grades. Um, and then they're now in a position where they are overseeing a school that has really young students, as young as sometimes three or four years old. And so it's important what we see that once they have this knowledge around play, or around um, developmentally appropriate practices, right? That we shouldn't expect young children at the age of four to sit on a carpet and listen to a story without saying anything for 20 minutes, that that's not a reasonable expectation. Um, we see these light bulbs in principals' um, eyes and teachers and say, I'm gonna start doing this differently or people incorporating more play into their mm -hmm. classrooms. So that's really, it's really incredible and kind of gratifying to see that, see yeah. that change happen. And then also to see them realize that parents, teachers, they can all be on the same page. They can all have this shared understanding um, and, and work together um, in children's best interest. I love that. I mean, thank you for the work that you're doing. That sounds fantastic. I think for our parents, like it, it just helps to know that this is happening. Schools are realizing that things are starting to shift. And, you know, I hope that one day this kind of work becomes international, yes. you know, start facilitating these things everywhere because it is, it is really important. I mean, for me, like with parenting, when I talk about play, yes, it is about learning and stuff, but it's also about emotional release, even discipline when you, you know, do it through play it becomes so much easier and it builds that connection uh, between the parent and child. It's such an important tool. It really is. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that play is is great for learning. The research shows that. Um, but additionally, it's a, it's a connector. Um, even for adults, um, I see that. That yeah. uh, I, I just did a conference last week and we started it with five minutes of play. So it was all teachers who didn't know each other. Um, and we just had materials, Play-Doh, um, kind of scissors, paper, all different things on the tables. And they played for five minutes as they talked to each other and got to know each other. Mm -hmm. And whether it's new people who are coming together and building a relationship or a parent and child who already know each other, um, play really deepens relationships. Uh, and, and then we know that learning, the best learning happens when there is a trusting relationship. And so I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it is um, one of the least talked about benefits of play yeah. is so much it supports relationships. It does. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jesse. This, this has been wonderful. Um, I love, I love play and I love, you know, everything that you've said and um, I've learned a few things too. So thank you. 
Thank you, Mia. Uh, thank you for the work you're doing and every parent who's attending your classes or listening to this um, is demonstrating that they want to do the best for their children or the children yeah. in their lives too. So um, just a, a big uh, round of applause to everyone because we're all doing the work day after day. <laughs> it is hard work. My gosh. It is. it is. And it's, but it's worth it. It's our next generation. So it's worth it. it. Yeah. Any final thoughts uh, before we, before we say goodbye, any final thoughts for parents? Um, anything that they should remember or think about? I think the biggest, the biggest takeaway I would say is to remember that, that play is very serious and impactful and also at the same time should be joyful and silly, like you were saying, and, um, and really meet both a parent's need and a child's need. Um, it, it will help the child, but it will also help us as adults with our stress, with our relationships. Yeah. So it's just great all around. Um, and I encourage everyone to, you know, it's something you can put into practice in five minutes, um, the day that you're listening right. to this, to just give it a try and see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's been really um, wonderful talking to you. And I hope the parents can, you know, benefit from this. And, uh, you know, it gives them ideas of what to do and how to spend time with their, with their child. So, yes. I thank hope you so everyone. Too. Yes. Thank you, everyone. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in another episode of Coffee Break and Parenting Talk. <laughs>